All right. Well, welcome to Emmaus this morning. It's great to see you. I always miss you when I'm not here. It's good to, um, glad you came out today to worship with us. If you're new, welcome. I hope you feel right at home. Raise your hand. If you like a Bible, we'll be in Genesis today, the first book of the Bible. And if you like a Bible um, to look at while we preach, while we teach today, we'll be on page 10, Genesis chapter 16. Also, if there's a basket near your under your seat because you sat in there in aisle, would you take that basket and pass it down? And if you'd like to hand off your email address to us through one of those communication cards or a prayer request or any kind of comment, that's what those cards are for. We'll collect those later this morning. All right, also pens are in there if you need to take notes. Good, well, come on in. The whole, the best seats in the house are still available. They're right here, ready to go. Preaching's better in the front every week. Um, good. Thanks for setting up today, folks, and thanks for coming out. I'm so grateful um, to be a part of this community, and it's, it's a blessing to be able to see you and um, to be in this journey together. Last week, we started a new series. Melissa Lester, I thought, did a great job kicking off this series called Story, When God Writes You In. Uh, for this series, we've, we've gathered up, we've collected, we've, we've curated Everybody's using that word now. We've curated a small batch of stories, organically grown, right? We've selected, we've roasted them in small batches, and we've collected this small group of stories. And the only thing these ancient stories have in common is this, that at some point in life, these ancient stories from Scripture collided with our lives, those of us who are sharing the teaching of this series, and in some ways sort of became our stories. Um, so when we read these stories now in Scripture... We're not just reading about then and there. Now when we read these stories, because God, it's like God has written us into these stories. And so now when we read these stories, it's like we're reading about right here and right now. And these ancient stories written a whole long time ago in another part of the world are, are providing guidance and direction and comfort and instruction for us right here and right now. Uh, yesterday, I spent some time getting ready for the spring baseball season, the 2016 baseball season. Um, this year, I'm going to hit the reset button, and after eight seasons coaching my older son, I'm going to go back, and I'm going to start again, and I'm going to start coaching my six-year-old son. It's the opposite direction you're supposed to move as a coach. You're supposed to go from little kids to big kids. I'm going from big kids to little kids, so you can pray for me as uh, we embrace another eight-year journey um, in that regard. Here's something I've noticed through all my years of coaching, whether it was coaching at the high school, I coached football at the high school here for several years, whether it was coaching soccer with my daughter or baseball with my son, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's old kids, doesn't matter if it's young kids. It's very interesting to watch little athletes' eyes. Eyes are very telling. It's very interesting to see their eyes, whether they make a great play or whether they make a great mistake. You can see so much by looking in their eyes. It's very telling. For years, I coached first base on Isaiah's team, four or five years in a row. And so a kid will hit the ball, and nine times out of ten, it happens right in front of me. They, they get to, you know, they're running down to first base. They get a hit. They get thrown out, whatever. And what happens, it doesn't matter. What happens is almost always the same thing. Do you know what it is? They look to the stands, 
right? They come back to first base because they're safe and they, and they look to the stands that you can just tell, you can, I can see it. It's happening three feet away from me and I saw it for years and years in a row and they're looking for the stands and there's only one question that's on their mind at that point. Did you see that? That's the only thing that matters at that point. Did you see me? And I've just seen, I mean, I've had some memorable moments. I've seen the gamut uh, take place right there at, at first base. Like the kid who hadn't gotten a hit all season, immigrated from another country where I don't even think they play baseball, hadn't got a hit, just was terrible the whole season, then finally puts one right over second base, gets, you know, he's safe at first, and looks up into the stands, and mom and dad are there, and they're standing, and they're like, see, we knew you could do this, right? And he was like, you get the big exhale, the big, I did it. I got a hit, like my first hit ever, right? And then there's, then there's always the kid that, whose dad is just barking. You can just tell who the dad is. There's 100 people, but you can tell who the dad is because he's just barking at him, just leaning on him. And he just gets this, this, this quick little shot up to third base, but he's kind of a big kid, so it's going to be a play. And it's a hustling, but he beats the throw to first. And so, you know, it's a big relief, and he looks up to the stands, and dad's on the phone and you just see the exasperation. You see like the pre-rage, you know? You see they're like, it doesn't matter what I do. I, 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 I miss a pitch and he yells at me. I get a hit and he doesn't even notice. And you, you just see the, any joy that was happening there just get drained out. Any accomplishment that was just experienced there just get drained out. He didn't need cheers, right? He just needed the assurance that I saw that, right? I see you, I saw that. Today I want to teach a story um, about a woman named Hagar. Hagar is part of, um, she's part of Abraham's story. Before Abraham is named Abraham, he's called Abram. And he has a wife, her name is Sarai. It's later changed to Sarah. So you'll hear me talk about three characters today. Well, there's God, and then there's Abram, his wife, Sarai, and Sarai's maidservant, her name's Hagar. And it's really important to understand how early it is in the story. And I mean like in the big story, in the story of scripture. This is super, super early. It can be really easy for us as 21st century Christians to take all of this revelation that we just sort of have come to understand about who Jesus is and how he fulfills the Old Testament and how he died and rose again for our sins and the Holy Spirit is here and then the church gets started. If we take all of this sort of post-Easter understanding, we try to cram it back into the first few chapters of the Bible, it gets very confusing. You need to understand that almost nothing has been revealed about God at this point. It's very primitive in the sense that God has not revealed much about who he is what his character's like, how he operates with people, um, because it's super, super early in the story. So we're going to read Hagar's story, which is in Genesis 16, but in order to get a sort of a sense of the drama there, we need to back up to the previous page. So if you're on page 10, go to page 8, and we'll, uh, I'll paraphrase a bit from Genesis 12. Genesis 12 is the first time God speaks to a guy named Abram. Abram does not know God. Abram doesn't know anybody who knows God. He's never heard of this God before. There are other gods that are recognized where Abram lives. You cannot say that Abram sort of heard about God from his grandmother because he didn't. She didn't know anything about this God. And so God reveals himself to Abram who knows nothing about him, and his revelation is forceful enough that Abram leaves his country. He immigrates to another place, 
and brings his family with him. And really, the only thing Abram could tell you about God at this point is that Abram told him to leave. I mean, that God told Abram to leave. And that God told Abram, you're going to have a lot of, a whole nation is going to be, you're going to have tons of descendants. And that you will be blessed to be a blessing to all nations. Right? That's all he could tell you about God at this point. And since that initial experience with God, God has only communicated directly to Abram like a couple of times in 10 years. That's a long time. You've changed everything. You've left everything. And now you only get an occasional, like every, it's twice in, in 10 years. All you know is this supernatural being who probably scared you more than he comforted you said, you better leave. And by the way, you're going to have a lot of kids. And since that time, life has been crazy. Uh, all kinds of family conflict has taken place since that time. All the neighboring tribes hate you because you're a threat. And then there have been a couple of significant personal lapses in his character, in Abram's character. Like at one point he lies about his wife to protect himself, and the guy he's afraid of takes his wife, makes her his wife. It's a mess. It's a real mess. It's been a mess ever since Abram said yes to God. Years go by, and when God shows up to Abram again, it's in chapter 15, and Abram's faith is frayed. It is almost shot. His confidence is gone. God shows up to Abram. He blesses Abram, but all Abram says is this, you said I'd have kids and I have no kids. It's kind of like, hey, what happened? Right? And so God takes Abram outside and he looks up into the night sky to remind him of how many kids he's going to have and uh, to assure him of the validity of his promise. And the only way that Abram can even conceive that God at this time in his life would begin to give him children is that he must, the only way this is going to work is for Abram to adopt one of his slaves as his son and that that slave, that, that young man, his, his adopted son will then have kids. That must be the way God is going to do this because Abram's thinking, I'm just way too old. But God says to Abram at this point, no, uh, the, the, your offspring's going to come from your own body. I'm going to build a nation from your own body. In other words, there will be a biological child, there will be biological children, grandchildren, biological great-grandchildren. And so Abram believes again, his faith is renewed and restored, and he goes forward. But then more years go by. Some people say 10 more years, up to 10 more years go by. And by now, Sarai, his wife, is 77 years old. And here's what happens next. Here's the story of Hagar, chapter 16, of Genesis. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarah said, and after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai took his wife, or Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. Sorry. Now, culturally, at this time, this was not that unusual, apparently, not uncommon. But I don't care what the customs are in your culture. 
Human nature doesn't change very much, right? It doesn't mean, it's been 4,000 years, but human nature hasn't changed that much. So when young Hagar becomes pregnant, guess what happens? Chaos, right? It's on. Here, here's, here's how it continues. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Boy, this is bouncing. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now she knows she's pregnant. She despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Abram says, your slave is in your hands. Uh, do with her whatever you think is best. And Sarai mistreated Hagar, and so Hagar fled from Sarai. Can you believe that? All that dysfunction in a verse and a half? That's bad. That was a whole lot of junk right there. So Abram thinks the only way he can conceive of God fulfilling his promise is through the adoption of a son. But that's not God's plan. Sarai thinks the only way this can work, I'm 77 after all, is I've got to give my maidservant to my husband. That must be the way God is, is going to do this. People say, I think God's trying to tell me this, which is such an interesting thing to say. I think God's trying, because we're, try, we're constantly trying to figure it out. These two people are trying to figure it out. It's clear they're trying to work with God's plan, but it's also clear they don't understand what's going on, and they're trying to fit their own understanding into God's plan. They're trying to make their understanding fit into what God says. It's hard to blame Sarai. Um, she's likely grieved. In that culture, she would have been shamed for her barrenness. So she's either convinced this must be the way God planned to do it, or probably she's taking things into her own hands and she's trying to control an uncontrollable situation. To, her, to a degree, her, um, her act is understandable. She's 77. Uh, but it's, it's not a faith-filled act. It's a wrong thing to do, which becomes clear in chapter 17. It's a huge mess. It's wrong. Things quickly fall apart. Just to summarize, Abram agrees to Sarai's plan. He offers no leadership, no objection, no encouragement to her failing faith. As soon as Hagar conceives, she starts boasting and bragging. Suddenly she's worth something and her worth is recognized. And Sarai becomes irrationally bitter and jealous. After all, Hagar had no say in this. She was essentially forced into this situation. Sarai blames Abram. Sarai blames God. Abram blames Sarai. They're doing this. In fact, the Hebrew is really interesting. She says, I put her in your hands. And he says, she's in your hands. Right? They're both going, it's not me. I didn't do it. It's absolute uh, failure to take responsibility. Abram's like, she's your problem. So then that results in, in violence. Sarai abuses Hagar, and Hagar, pregnant and alone, runs away into the desert. You thought your family was messed up, right? <laughs> so the story's details are they're important, but they're probably nothing like your own or very little. I'm not relating to, to Hagar at this, at this point very much at all. The specific details just seem like they're such a world away. But what I think we need to see here in general is that Hagar's story is a story of relational brokenness. Hagar's story is a story of unfair treatment. I can relate to that. Abuse, neglect, disappointment. That's what Hagar's story is about. Even the little bit of personal joy that she might have received through having a baby of her own becomes the source of her worst pain. It's bad. 
I had a couple meetings with people just this last week where they just shared with me what's going on in their life and the situations in their family. And I'm just reminded again of just the level of brokenness and disappointment and abuse and neglect that people in our own community experience so frequently. And the, and the pain that is uh, part of that. We may not be able to relate, relate to the details of Hagar's situation, but I think we can certainly understand this kind of general brokenness, this kind of disappointing situation. So look what happens next. Imagine you know almost nothing about God. The only thing you've heard about God is that your master, he worships this God, because you're Hagar. And then this is what happens next. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. I want to focus on what God says to Hagar. There's these two great questions. Where have you come from? And where are you going? I think these are great questions at any stage in our life. It's been years since I had read this story, and I came across it just in my regular reading in September while I was walking across Spain. This is the reading for the day. And I thought about these questions a lot as I walked uh, most of every day. Where have you come from, Nathan? And where are you going? In other words, here's God breaking into Hagar's life in a way that she can recognize probably the first time she ever has a personal encounter with God. And God comes with questions. Where have you come from? And where are you going? And they're questions that carry such profound weight even today. In other words, where have you come from? What have you been through, God says? What have you been through? What pain have you experienced? What are the big events that have shaped your life? What stands out from the past? God is saying, tell me your story. And then, where are you headed next? Where do you think you're going? What's your plan? What are you thinking right now? What's next for you? Question, does God need these questions answered for his sake? No. Is God trying to fill in the blanks like he looked away for a minute and missed? No. These are not, he, he, these are not questions for God's sake. God is asking these questions for Hagar's sake. God is asking these questions for our sake, for our benefit. When I was in Spain in September, I spent a lot of time thinking, whole mornings, thinking and remembering about where I'd come from. Big events in my past, decisions. I even talked to my mom about a couple of big decisions that I made that, man, if I would have done something different at that point, for better or worse, things would have been so different. And, this, and then just spending all afternoon praying, imagining, dreaming, writing down about where am I going? Where have I come from? And what's next for me? Where am I going? And, and the perspective that that afforded me was so remarkable. It was so remarkable. Such a blessing to be able to have the perspective, where have I come from? Where am I going? The difference with Hagar, however, is that she's so hurt and she's so filled with pain right now, and this happens to us too. She's not seeing perspective on any side. She's stuck in the moment. She's just drilled in on the urgent crisis. And her response to God is simply, I'm running away. That's what I'm doing. I'm running away from it all. I'm leaving it all. I'm out of here. I have no idea where I'm going. She's literally walking into the desert, right? 
I'm just leaving. I'm going away. You get the sense that no one has cared for Hagar her whole life. So it, the Bible says she's an Egyptian slave, which probably means Abram picked her up about 10 years ago when he went through Egypt and caused so much trouble for himself and for others that they, they basically paid him to leave. And she was probably given to him or he acquired her at some, some level through that experience. Now Hagar is simply being used by Sarai, used by Abram to get what they want, and then abused by Sarai when she gets what she wants, but it's not the way she wants it, gets jealous about it. No one has paid attention to this girl. There's never been anyone in the stands for this girl. She's only always been property, a tool valued for what she can do and not for who she is, and therefore she's running away. Why is she running away? Because that's what we do. That's what we do, right? When the present is painful, we try to leave it. We try to forget it. We pretend it's not happening. We try to cover it up. We don't want to face it. Facing it's too painful, so we move on. Maybe you've never packed a little bag or a knapsack and walked down the street, but all of us are tempted, and many of us are in the process of trying to run away from our problems. Well, what's so wrong with that? You can't heal if you're running away, right? You can't heal from the pain if you're running away from it. So what happens next is very much specifically for Hagar. God tells her where to go. God tells her what to do. He speaks very specifically about her baby, some hard things and some good things, and God blesses her. So God's words to Hagar are meant for Hagar. Um, but Hagar's response reveals something about God that has not been revealed yet in Scripture. It has not been, this truth has not been revealed yet in the whole Bible. And this is what you and I need to hear, especially if we're running away. This is what we need to hear in order for healing over our pain to begin. Hagar says to God, you are the God who sees me. Right? This is the truth that will begin the healing process in Hagar and in us. The realization that all that has happened to her, all of the brokenness that has happened, all of the disappointment, all of the things that didn't go as she hoped they would, that God sees it all, that God, he is the God who sees her. She um, is to name her baby Ishmael, which means God hears he hears the insults that she's received. He hears the cries for help. He has heard her through the last uh, how many years. He is the God who hears. And then she, after receiving this name for her baby, she gives a name to God, which has not been given to God yet. And the name she gives to God is Be'er Lahai Roy, which means you are the living one who sees me. The first time God wrote me into this story I was 13 years old. Nine months earlier, I had prayed in my bedroom alone that God would accept me. I, I thanked him for his love and forgiveness, and I invited Jesus into my life. And since that time, I had been praying for my family, specifically my dad. I was the only Christian in my family at this point. My mom saw some value in church, so she had started bringing us to church. My dad didn't see any value in church or in God. And so what I was taught to do at that point was basically 
to pray for those who didn't know Jesus, so the first guy to come to mind is my dad, and to read the Bible. So I, every morning or evening, I would pray for my dad to embrace Jesus into his life, and then I'd read a paragraph from Matthew's gospel. But I did this very quietly. I remember hiding my Bible from my dad when he would come upstairs in the morning to say goodbye before work because I didn't want my dad to see. But then, nine months after I started following Jesus, nine months after I started praying every day for my dad, he, at age 39, embraced God. He gave his life to Jesus. And it scared me. And it changed me. It deeply changed me. I knew, I was like Hagar, I knew almost nothing about God, right? But this, when this happened, this is when he revealed to me that he is the God who sees me. He has heard my prayers. He's the God who knows what's going on in my family. And I remember the prayer that I prayed that night in my bedroom. I don't remember the exact words, and I'm sure they weren't exactly like this, but the memory that I have in my heart is of the feeling that I had in my heart while I prayed. And my feeling was something like, you hear me. You see me? It, it, was a sta- it was the first time I'd ever experienced anything like that. You heard what I was asking for? You, you see what's going on in my family? You're going to do something about this? You, it's like, it, was, it almost was scary because it was so potent. I almost didn't expect God to be so personally involved. And that truth, friends, since that day, it's helped me, it's shaped me, it's comforted me, it's held me through the last 30 years years. By God's grace, I can testify that I live most days just with this basic assumption, this basic understanding that God sees me. God hears me. God knows me. He cares about what's going on in my life. And this just spreads across all that we experience. By his grace, I'm so thankful for it. Like last week at the cemetery, Visiting the marker for our first son who died 17 years ago. Lots of questions still. Lots of grief still. But this basic, basic understanding. You see this. You've heard this. You know all about this. You are the God who sees me. Even last Sunday, driving to El Dorado Hills to preach at a friend's church. Thinking about all the things that were happening here all of the needs that were here, all of the needs that are there, all of the other things happening in my life and in our family, and just this overwhelming sense. As I, I literally, as I crossed the, the dam with the, with, lake, with the lake on my side, on my left, just the sense that you see all this. You are the God who sees me. You are the God who hears me. What's going on in your life today? Where are you coming from? Where are you going? There may be a thousand things that you don't know, a thousand things that you don't understand, but know this, friends. God is the God who sees you. God is the God who hears you. God knows and God cares. You don't have to run away. You don't have to run away. You can face whatever the situation is, with the basic confidence and understanding that God sees you, right? He is the God who sees you. He is the God who hears you. 
He knows, right? God knows. May that truth, uh, may God give you the grace to believe it. And may it cause great confidence in your heart, even in the face of situations that don't make sense to you. Let's pray together for a minute. Where have you come from? Where are you going? Thank you, Lord, for this early revelation at the very beginning of the book. Thank you for setting this straight, for making this clear that all that will happen from here on, all that has happened in our lives, all that we are concerned about in the future, that you see it. You see it. You know it. And we can, we can enter into a relationship with you believing that you've got it. We can trust you. I pray, Lord, for confidence, for boldness, for comfort in pain. because you see us. Thank you, Lord. Okay, we wouldn't hide anything. So futile and silly to try. But I pray we'd have the freedom to just lay it all out before you and say, do you see this mess? Do you see all that has happened here? And be able to say, thank you. You understand it. I, I don't want to force my plan into your plan. I want to receive your plan. Guide me. God who sees, God who hears, God who knows. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. Well, I want to invite you to take a minute to stand up, greet one another. So a lot of